Good morning, Disciples Church, brothers, sisters, friends, visitors. My name is Phil Comstock, and it is my privilege today to read scripture. Our reading today is from 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, verses 17 through 25. And if you call on him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, raised, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, welcome to Disciples Church. It is good to see you, good to be with you. Thanks for being here on a beautiful day. I know you could be outside and you're here instead, and so it is good to have you with us. My name is Jonathan Mosier. I'm one of the pastors here, and we are so glad to have you here today. Turn in your Bibles, if you're not already there, to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. I hope you enjoyed the turn of weather this week. I was reminded this week of how much I have a hankering all of a sudden to play golf. It's something that happens every year, and usually that feeling is satiated by about the time I hit the seventh hole and I'm 10 over par. But nonetheless, I have that feeling it comes back every year for me. I was a late arrival on the golf scene. Uh, My chances at a pro career are long behind me. But if there's one thing I know, it's how to dive headlong into a new interest. You can just ask my wife about that. But when I first started playing, I, I did a bunch of research. I picked up magazines. I went on websites. I looked at different videos, trying to figure out what kind of clubs should I buy as a beginner? What should I be looking at? I watched videos on how to improve my game since I didn't have a game. Figured that'd be a good place to start and all of those kinds of things. Subscribed to a golf magazine, all of this stuff. But when I actually got out on the course, it became apparent that my body had no interest whatsoever in doing what my mind had been devoted in doing and studying. And one of the great mysteries of the universe is how can it possibly be so difficult to sit a ball, to hit a ball rather, that is sitting at your feet and not moving. See, as we, as we come to the scripture passage this morning, the truth is that there's often a gap between the theoretical and the practical in our lives. As we read scripture, there are times where it can feel very theoretical, very ethereal, very distant and far off. Maybe it's the technical nature of the writing of Paul in the book of Romans, for instance, or the obscurity of portions of the whole Old Testament to us, distance by thousands of years, or maybe some of the more challenging parables of Jesus that are not explained in the New Testament. But we know 
that the whole of God's word is profitable, it's necessary, it's helpful, but at first glance, we're not always able to actually see how it makes a connection to the everyday of our lives. But there are portions of scripture like this one this morning that help us bridge the gap between the theoretical and the practical. As we've been working our way through this first chapter of 1 Peter, one of the things that we've been talking about is the nature and identity of the Christian. Who is it that God has actually declared us to be? How is it that he's brought salvation into our lives, the way that he's pursued us and chased us down and adopted us when we were in the middle of our sin and even our struggle against him, that in that particular moment he chose out of his sovereign grace to save us. And now, as Peter begins to make this connection to the practical goings-on of the believer's life, he's trying to get us to answer these questions. How does the reality of the fatherhood of God in my life, as we talked about last week, actually lead me to live every day? How does the character of God that I'm meant to be imitating shape my interaction with brothers and with sisters? Well, Peter's going to address those ideas, and as he talks to these suffering Christians— is people who are experiencing persecution and hardship, he reminds them once again of the source of their hope and their power for living. And that brings us to verse 17 of 1 Peter chapter 1, which says this, and if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Now that's a loaded verse, and it's one that if you pulled it from its context and read, might immediately lead you to a frightened heart. There's a lot of language in there that's intimidating to us, but Peter's going to start with this big idea. He begins by saying, God is an impartial judge. And there are two obvious pieces to that declaration, the first being that God himself is impartial, that God is entirely unimpressed by the things that impress us. And what does that actually lead him to do as he interacts with mankind broadly, not dealing here just with believers, but as he interacts with all people throughout the world, as he views them, as he, as he treats them, how does it actually affect his decision-making? Can you even imagine being truly impartial? There are all sorts of situations in our lives where we strive for impartiality and where we try to deal with people in an impartial manner. Maybe that's in a workplace or in the home, but we are completely incapable of doing that. We're we're broken, fallen creatures, and so it's hard to even put ourselves in the mindset of how God might interact. But what it means for God is this, that for those who've placed their faith in Christ, God is no more impressed or rather for those who have not placed their faith in Christ, God is no more impressed with a moralistic, well-behaved citizen than with a hardened criminal. Now, how in the world can that be true? Because that is completely unnatural to us. It's unnatural in terms of the way that our laws are constructed as a society, in terms of the way that we view people in all sorts of different situations. Well, the reason it's true in the eyes of God, in a way that it's not necessarily true in our eyes, is this. Because apart from God's intervening grace, everything mankind does is tainted with sin and self-dependence. It's that truth that informs our understanding of the biblical idea of total depravity. A term may or may not be familiar to you, but it's a very theological one, a very biblical one. And the idea of total depravity does not mean that people are always behaving as badly as they theoretically could. 
What it means, though, is that apart from the work of grace in someone's life, everything we do is marked by sin. That sins in our life are are defined by commission, the things that we do that God has implicitly or explicitly instructed us not to do, and likewise by omission, that there are all kinds of things that God has instructed us to do, and we refuse to do those things. And so God, in his impartiality, looks at the fallenness of the human heart, not dependent on how well somebody fits into a society, but looks at the actual motivations of the human heart and is able to judge, to discern, to recognize the fallenness and the brokenness in each person, that he is not impressed with your station, with your accomplishments, with your own personal sense of morality, to the extent that it is divorced from an understanding of who God himself is and a relationship with him. But not only is he impartial, according to this passage, he is secondly a judge. And everything about us as a people reacts harshly to the idea of God as judge. We live in a time of fierce independence that I get to define my own reality. I get to define my own personhood. I get to define my own identity. And there is something culturally about this that just doesn't sit well with us. We don't like the idea that God actually has a holy and righteous standard for his creation and that anything short of perfect conformity to that standard is cause for judgment. We don't like the idea that God himself could actually look at us and find something worth judging, or even more than that, that there might be something in our lives that is so objectionable to God that he might, in fact, extend wrath towards us for it. But the Bible is full of those descriptions. As we talked about last week, that whole idea is that when we sin, it's not merely a violation of the law, though it certainly is that, but at its root, it's a cosmic treason. It's a declaration of authority of your own life, that God has been kicked off the throne and you have been put into his place. And in the face of that kind of sin, God is well within his prerogative to determine the proper consequences for our rebellion. But then Peter says something here, that is incredible. He says, for those who know Jesus, you get to call this judge Father. And we talked about the fatherhood of God at length last week, but just imagine in your minds, if you can, the fear that you might have in appearing before a judge who has the power to execute justice for crimes that you are guilty of committing knowing in your heart that you're guilty, know that you've violated the law, knowing that there's evidence of your crime, and now standing in front of the judge, he's ready to hand down his sentence. He's ready to assign and execute justice for the crimes you have committed. Imagine the fear that ought well up in our hearts. And that's exactly what Peter's talking about here. He's saying you stand in front of an impartial judge who is not impressed with who you are or what you've done. And imagine then the fear that ought to grip us in in standing in front of that particular judge. But then he says, says this, imagine the difference now. If your relationship to that individual was not primarily through his role as judge in your life, but as your father. The fear is suddenly removed. Do you still recognize the authority and the power and the significance of his role as judge? Absolutely. But you can have utter confidence 
in your interactions with him because you are assured of the safety of your relationship. And that relationship, according to Peter, should lead you, in verse 17, to conduct yourselves with fear. Now again, we've got a contextual issue here because when we hear the word fear, we hear it through one very specific understanding. We have very specific associations with that word. When we think about fear, we think about that gut-wrenching, uncomfortable pit in our stomach for the unknown for the things that are known but are intimidating or frightening to us, that's what we think of when we think of fear. But we have to actually define this for ourselves according to Scripture because this distinction is going to be vital for you, particularly if you're someone who tends towards a very religious view of who God is. If you grew up with an understanding or maybe came to faith later in life with an understanding that God himself is a harsh being, a stern being, a distant being, an unloving being, and you hear the instruction to fear God, all it does is confirm your priors. Well, of course I'm going to fear him. There's nothing about him I like, and there's everything about him to be scared of. Of course I'm going to fear him. Or maybe, rather than it being a religious view, maybe you've taken your own experience of a personal, broken, parental relationship or a personal emotional insecurity, and you've assigned that to God. In other words, for some of you, undoubtedly, there was a relationship with a parent, maybe particularly a father, where you just never felt the ability to impress. You never felt the ability to please him. You never felt the ability to get out of him the kind of affection and the kind of affirmation that you were longing for. And so when you hear the words that God is a father to you, you don't hear it as the loving comfort that it's intended to be, as the promise of security and safety that is guaranteed in that relationship. Instead, you hear it as a threat. For you, the word fear, once again, just confirms what you already assumed. But the problem with that perspective of the fear of the Lord is that the Bible is really explicit regarding that sort of fear. The sort of fear that makes you want to run away or hide or puts a pit in your stomach, according to Scripture, is not a good thing. The Bible says in 1 John that perfect love casts out fear, and in that context, talking explicitly about that relationship with God. In 2 Timothy, we're told that God has not given us a spirit of fear in terms of our interactions with other people and implicitly our relationship with God as well. So that must then mean that there are actually two different kinds of fear. It must mean that there's another sort of fear, a fear with which we are far less acquainted because we are actually being instructed in this passage to fear that we need to understand. And I once heard a pastor talk about it this way. I thought it was so helpful. He said the bad fear that we experience, the, the fear that most of us think of when we hear that word is the sort of fear that is born of distrust. That if I don't do or say or believe or act in the right way, then this person might be cruel to me, they might hurt me, they might be mean to me. And if you go into the presence of someone like that, someone whom you do not have trust for, you may experience bad fear. But what the Bible is talking about here is something totally different. He's talking about good fear. Fear in the sense of a reverent trust. And both of those words, I think, are vital for our understanding. 
Because rather than it being about me and the fear of what's going to happen to me if I do something wrong, instead it's the idea that I don't want to hurt or offend or disrespect this person because they mean so much to me. I remember, for instance, on the day of my wedding, I remember Jessica coming down the aisle and standing up front with me, and I remember holding her hands as I promised to love her unconditionally. As I looked into her eyes and made the promise that she was the only one who was going to be in my life. As I looked into her eyes and made the promise that regardless of what happened in our lives, I was going to be there. And I remember in that moment, through all of the nerves of that moment, feeling the sense of responsibility, the weightiness of that promise. It was a good and right fear. It wasn't a fear that if I mess up, something terrible is going to happen. It was a fear that said, because I love this person so much, I want to do everything I can not to bring heartache or pain or difficulty into her life. In a sense, that's what this sort of good fear is talking about. It's a joyful fear. It's a positive fear. It's awe and wonder before God. In the words of this particular pastor, the only way that you can get to this kind of fear is to be absolutely sure that God is not going to hurt you. To be absolutely sure in spite of your flaws that he will not condemn you. The difference between a converted person, a person with a new heart, a person who understands the gospel, and a person who's just knuckling under is the difference between a person with the positive fear of God versus the negative fear of God. How can you get that positive fear of God? You have to know that there is no condemnation for you. And that's exactly where Peter is going to lead us. Look what he then says as he continues in verse 17 into 18. He says this, And if you call on him as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. How? Verse 18. Knowing that you were ransomed. That is past tense with an ongoing action. You were ransomed. You were now ransomed into freedom, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but how were you ransomed? With the precious blood of Christ. Like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, he was foreknown, that is Christ, before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. So here's Peter's question. He's saying you're to have this fear in your life that motivates and drives you, this healthy, good fear. So how do you actually get it? How can you have this good fear of the Lord, this reverence born of love with the assurance and the safety in his presence? You can know it because you were ransomed with the precious blood of Christ. The guarantee of your safety, the guarantee of your security, the guarantee of your eternal destiny, the guarantee of your relationship with a loving father was through the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And how does he describe it? He says you were ransomed by it. It's this idea that God has obtained us, he's rescued us, that you had been taken captive, kidnapped as it were, by sin and death, but the, the price for your freedom was purchased. The terms of your deliverance were met. And what was the cost of those things? Look what he says first. Not with perishable things, silver or gold. Now, why is that important to mention? And of all things, why does Peter go out of his way to actually say that? 
Well, think about it this way. We know that God owns the cattle on a thousand hills, the wealth in every mine. That's how that old hymn goes. We know that everything in the world, everything in creation belongs to him already. All the money in the world is under his control. He is in need of absolutely nothing. There's nothing in creation that does not belong to him already. And if that is true, then what would it have actually cost him to exchange some goods for you? It would have cost him nothing. When you are infinitely wealthy in a material sense, giving away however much you have means nothing to you. But the price for your redemption was so exorbitant, it was so high and so incredible that there was only one thing that could cover the cost of it. The blood of the only begotten Son. And brother and sister, this is where we ought to stop and marvel that you were ransomed, that your value and your worth was so great in the eyes of God that the most precious commodity that has ever existed, the blood of Jesus Christ himself, was spilt and spent for your freedom and ransom. That not only did he rescue you, but he ransomed you. He brought you into a safe relationship with him. And now you are empowered to obey through a spirit that is given, through the Holy Spirit that is given to you. Not only are you no longer opposed to him, but you've actually been made one with him. I in Christ and Christ in me. It's the picture that if if there was a geographic position where Jesus Christ was located, you've been moved into it. You've been surrounded with Jesus Christ. I in him and him in me. There is no getting to a person like that. There's no stealing that away from somebody. When you are in Christ, there's absolute safety and absolute security and absolute, absolute promise of the end of all things. So when he then says, conduct yourselves with fear because you've been ransomed by the blood of Jesus, here's where my mind went this week. It went immediately to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 15, which says this, and Christ died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. as one pastor quipped, are the things you're living for worth Christ dying for? Is what you're living for worth the cost of the precious blood of Jesus? Or put differently, I don't want to live for the things that Christ had to die for. And Peter leads us to one of the practical outworkings of this new life, this new identity, this new recognition. In verse 22, here's what he says. Having, yourselves, having purified your souls, rather, by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Now, we've got to remind ourselves of the context because when we remember the context of what's going on in this book, it actually causes us to read these verses differently. 
He's not speaking here to people who are comfortable in their Christianity and comfortable in their earthly freedoms and comfortable in their political situations. He is talking here to suffering Christians who are experiencing persecution explicitly because of their faith. And he says to these suffering Christians that in their moments of suffering and difficulty, they ought to be able to demonstrate a love for others. In the moment where they are going to most be tempted to be self-absorbed and selfish, he calls them to love. Peter is going to press these believers to live for more than mere existence. He wants them to see a purpose and a call, even in their difficulty. And he tells them that they're going to find that purpose as they obediently love others with a pure heart. What in the world does that mean? Those words are important because they're loaded with meaning. When he says, love one another from a pure heart, he's saying this, don't let your love be born of scheming and conniving. Where your affection for other people and your pursuit of other people and your love for other people is actually a constant calculation about what somebody else can give you and and making then deposits, as it were, so that later you can make a withdrawal. There's nothing pure about that sort of love. And yet, that is the experience of love that is communicated consistently by our culture. When we think for a moment about the marriages that surround us, Christian marriages and non-Christian marriages alike, in a very real way, the zeitgeist, the spirit of the age, has seeped into our mindset and our perspective where we view marriage in a calculating sense. What can this person do for me? What kind of income are they bringing? What kind of emotional security are they bringing? What kind of, what, what kind of career advancement opportunities can I expect? All of these exchanges come in our minds. When we think about the relationships that play, play out around us, for many of those relationships, they're all about what we can get out of them. How do they make me feel? How do they enable me to pursue my dreams and to achieve my goals? And if that relationship ceases to accomplish that purpose, then I just drop it and move on. That is a transactional relationship. It's an exchange of goods and services. It's not love. And Peter says for the Christian, your love as those who've been loved by the Father should be marked by that sort of purity. Not looking for what I can get from you, but loving you purely out of a heart that understands the love of the Father towards me. So that then ought to lead us to ask the question, why did God love us? Well, here's the unsatisfactory answer to many people. He loved us because he loved us. He didn't need us. We had nothing to offer him. We had nothing to give him back. And yet, he loves us. And Peter says, let your love for one another be like that. But the other significant word here is something that we read over because in our English Bibles, it doesn't actually appear. In English, we really only have one word for the word love, and it's love. But in the Greek language, there are three particular Greek words. And here's why this is important, because when we in our context use the word love, we use it about everything. 
So you love your spouse and you love your kids and you love your dog and you love the Packers and we expect be, people to be able to discern between those different types of love in our lives and our experience even without explaining what we mean when we say it. So when I say that I love my kids and when I say that I love the Packers, presumably I mean two different things. Although for some people maybe that's not the case. But this is why Greek is so helpful for us, because these three words give us an indication here as to what it is that Peter's actually after. The first Greek word for love is the word phileo. It's the word that Peter actually uses in this text when he says that he wants us to show brotherly love towards one another. Phileo literally means brotherly love. Think of, think of the, the word Philadelphia, the city of Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. That's where that idea comes from. The second word is the word eros. It's where we get our word erotic. It's talking about physical or sexual love. But the third word, and the word that Peter uses here, is the word agape. It literally means to love others unconditionally. So it's as if Peter is saying here, you know that person at church who rubs you the wrong way? You know that person who drives you nuts? the person you avoid, the person who grates on your sensibilities or always says the wrong thing or, or whatever it happens to be, Peter is saying that's exactly the person I want you to love. To love them unconditionally. To love them as a brother or a sister would love them. And he's saying by obeying the truth that you've been given, you've been set apart to love others. Peter is saying you are to love without any expectation of reciprocity. And again, the model for that sort of love is found in Christ himself. And so we are now being instructed to show the, sort of, the same sort of one-way love that we are shown. I came across this this week. I thought it was so helpful. I want to read it for you. Here's how one commentator described it. He said, the Bible is one long story of God meeting our rebellion with his rescue, our sin with his salvation, our guilt with his grace, our badness with his goodness. The overwhelming focus of the Bible is not the work of the redeemed, but the work of the redeemer. Which means that the Bible is not first a recipe for Christian living, but a revelation book of Jesus who is the answer to our unchristian living. And having been shown this revelation of Jesus, having seen his love up close, something miraculous now happens in the life of the believer. Look what he says in verse 23. Since you have been born again. Now, we talked about that at length two weeks ago. We're not going to talk about it again here. But he's saying that's the, the first thing that happens. Your soul aligns with God in a sense, right? You've experienced his love. You've been born again. And notice how you were born again or what kind of birth it was. Not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. There is something infinite and eternal about your new birth. That the infinite love of God, meaning he could not love you any more than he already loves you, and it's as if that seed of love has been implanted in your soul. That it begins to bear fruit outward in your interactions with other people where you begin to extend the infinite, eternal love of God to those who are least lovable and least deserving of love. It's a miraculous thing for a Christian to experience. Here's how Karen Jobes described it. She said, love one another because you've been reborn with an eternal nature. And love is the essence of that nature. So think about it for a minute. 
the Bible is going to tell us in multiple ways that God is love. That however else we want to try to define love, whatever examples we want to use or illustrations we want to give or explanations we want to extend, at the very heart, the only way to know what love actually is is to know God, that he actually defines love. That love is an outflow of who he is. His character and his nature is love. That God is love in essence. And therefore, Jesus is love displayed. And the Holy Spirit is love applied. Now, don't hear me wrong. I'm not depersonifying the person of the Godhead. I'm not trying to boil down who God is to a mere idea or emotion, but that's the whole problem, right? We think of love as just an emotion. We think of it as something wholly divorced from who God is rather than an outflow of his character and his nature. See, the power to love others in this unconditional way comes from the new birth that you've experienced through the word of God. A word of God, by the way, that we're told later in this text is eternal and unfading and it doesn't change. It has the very power to transform your soul as you hear it preached and as you preach it to yourselves. In other words, to love this way is not you mustering up this unconditional, non-reciprocable, I think I made that word up, supernatural one-way love but rather it's Galatians 2.20 being played out in you. That I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It's the spirit of Christ that indwells us that reflects the Christ life. So how do you get this if you've not experienced it? How do we get this if we're not currently experiencing it? Well, we go back to Peter's earlier commendation to live in the fear of the Lord. I want to leave you with a quote that's been attributed to Eugene Peterson. He described the fear of the Lord this way, and I want you to listen carefully. His language is very poetic, so just understand that as you listen to it, but I think it's very helpful. He says, the fear of the Lord is not studying about God, but living in reverence before God. For most of us, we don't so much lack knowledge, we lack reverence. Fear of the Lord is not a technique for acquiring spiritual know-how, but a willed not knowing. It is not so much know-how we lack, we lack a simple being there. Fear of the Lord, nurtured in worship and prayer, silence and quiet, love and sacrifice, turns everything we do into a life of breathing God. When you so encounter God, when you so experience his love, I don't mean that in just some mere emotional sense, but when the love of God so grips your heart, when you're so struck by it and so put into awe at who God is and what he's done for you, it creates in you an ability to love others the same way. That is an extension of the love we've been shown and experienced, that love begins to overflow in our interactions with other people, with those whom we least expect to be able to love. 
And so to the extent that you feel unable to love other people or find other people so objectionable that you have no desire to love them to begin with, understand that to some extent or another, it is showing that there's a detriment or rather there's a limitation in the way that you've experienced and understood the love of God. You see, it's not enough to just know about him. There are all kinds of people who know all about God and don't love him or love others and have no desire to be with him. You need to know the living word of God. To know the gospel so personally and in such a real way that the living word itself that doesn't fade or die but ushers in new birth, begins to transform your outlook and your perspective on those you meet. And we do that by hearing it preached. That's why there's not a week that goes by at this church where we don't talk on some element of the gospel, if not the gospel explicitly. It's the reason that we see it demonstrated when we come to the Lord's table together. It's what we experience when people gather within the context of community and talk about what's going on in their lives and where they're struggling and then hear a brother or sister lift them up in prayer. See, you need the experience of his love. You need to encounter him. And what Peter is going to say is until the moment that you find yourself in his presence to be so safe and so secure and so sure that you are not under condemnation that you can actually begin to fear him in a right sense, in a reverent sense. Until that happens, you will not have the ability to love others. So brothers and sisters, let's not try to put on a face of love. Let's not try to put on a mere demonstration of affection, an imitation but having genuinely experienced and known the love of God for us, demonstrated through Christ and imputed to us through the Spirit to see that love overflow to those around us. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this text and we thank you for what it tells us about you. That if God is love, at the very least, Christ's work on the cross demonstrated that love. And the Holy Spirit in adopting us applied that love. God, we thank you that you are not merely emotional. And we also thank you that you are not emotionless. We thank you that your love is something infinitely greater than mere emotion. And we thank you that because of the personal relationship to which we've been invited, we have the ability now to experience your love, and to demonstrate it to others. God, as those in this room, even, who may be suffering, going through dark days and dark nights of the soul, I pray, God, that for them in this moment, and for all of us who will experience those moments, which is everybody, I pray that even in those moments, we would be so overwhelmed by your love for us that we would be willing and able and longing to demonstrate the love of God towards those who are around us, the agape love, the unconditional love, so that you can be glorified and that we can find that you indeed are our living hope. And we pray these things in your beautiful name. Amen.